Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. What a day, huh? You know, uh, I, I don't want to assume here because there may very well be someone here who just has not seen the news. Uh, for those of you who may not know, yesterday in El Paso, Texas, there was a major shooting event. And uh, last night in Dayton, Ohio, at 1 a.m., down the Oregon District, um, we know of 10 people who were killed and 26 injured. And um, so this has now happened to us. And um, there are so many emotions and reactions from this. It, it, I literally was talking to a resident who was working at Miami Valley Hospital this morning uh, at the last service, and it's just, it's almost surreal talking to someone who is treating victims of a shooting. And um, we as a team, we then obviously, especially when it happens the morning of one of our gatherings, we look at, okay, how, how do we address this? How do we contextualize this? Today's subject matter is we're looking at the Church of Philadelphia in Revelation 3 actually coincides in intent with what we need to hear today. But this opening song that we're going to do is actually an anthem. It's an anthem of... In spite of who I've been, in spite of who I am, uh, Jesus, you're going to win. You're going to win in me. And for a lot of the time this morning, we thought about, uh, let's, let's, just, let's not put that at the beginning. It doesn't feel right doing an anthem. As we thought about it more, contextualizing this reality, as much as we can debate about the why of mass shootings, I think we can all agree that our world needs desperately People who are full of love and hope, right? And we who follow Christ are saying we have surrendered our lives to Christ in such a way that people look at us and go, what happened to you? And that when we walk out of here today, we need to love that barista as a human being. We need to love that server at the restaurant. We need to love that person we run into at the convenience store. We need to love our neighbor. We need to love our family. And to be filled with Christ's love to hear is, is this much short. Like it's game on, friends. The world needs us to let Christ make us who we say we are. And so as a result of all that, we said, we're just going to open with this song, okay? It, it is a celebratory song. But Romans, Paul tells us, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That the only way to get rid of darkness is with light, right? That's the only way. That's the only way. And I, and I love this. I, I really think that the Lord was speaking to me through Justin Howard, my friend. Justin, as you know, um, it leads the Black Box Improv downtown. And Justin and Britt were just, they were shaken this morning because uh, they were at the early service. And Justin said he was in Washington, D.C. this week, and, a, and a, an anchor from a, a major news outlet was speaking. And she said, you know, I used to be at this network and now I'm at this network, and they're very different networks. And she said, I used to think I was right because when I was at this network, I hated the right people. And she says, now I realize that hating the right people is still hate. And hate only produces hate. That's what it produces. 
You can hate the wrong, pe- the right people, but you still hate. So those of you who are of Christ, I would ask that you stand up in a moment and you sing and you say, Jesus, your love has to have the victory in me. It has to. And may this be a day of surrender like no other at Southbrook ever. Okay? And it will have been worth our hour together. So stand up and love someone. Say hi to someone and we're going to sing this anthem together. Okay? We hope you can join us this week as we join 400,000 other people around the globe to uh, invest in two days of the Global Leadership Summit. And uh, we're, we're one of the larger sites, so it's here. It's not too late for you to be a part of this. It's an unbelievably cost-effective way to get some training. I know it has intercepted my life many times. We've been a part of the GLS for 20-some years since the very first one, and uh, You can come here, Southbrook, and be a part of that this week. No matter your age, you have an influence. Um, I was, uh, last night I mentioned this, but it is even more apropos today. A number of movies we saw this summer, but I think my favorite movie I saw this summer was a movie called Yesterday. And I don't know if you saw it, but it is about a struggling musician who has these dreams of being a musician and he's just struggling, and there's this 12-second, I think it is, electrical glitch that happens where the whole world loses electric for 12 seconds, electricity, and, and uh, when everybody wakes up, nobody remembers the Beatles music, except him. He's the only person who remembers the Beatles music, and he's a struggling musician. And it is a fantastic story. It's really about... It's really about what success is and success isn't. It's a nice little twist at the end. But uh, I look through movies and art conceptually, and, I, and then just it set me on a trail of, of this yesterday concept. And uh, with today's events, what if we woke up tomorrow and the local church did not exist? The, the force, the greatest force for eternal good did not exist. Nobody remembered it. It was gone. Well, the gospel and the local church of Christ is only one generation from extinction. If you and I don't pass it on, it ends. Now, we have hope that his kingdom is forever, so his kingdom will endure forever. But the local church, which as we've seen in Dayton this summer, is the force of unbelievable good. In spite of what you'll hear, it's the force of unbelievable good when tornadoes hit and when shootings happen and et cetera, et cetera. And I just want to affirm for you, I know for me, when what happened this morning in the Oregon district happens, it just fuels me more to be a part of building a local church that is a community of love to our community. It just fuels me more. And, and I don't know about you, I hope it's the same thing for you. And all of you who give of your time, your talents, and your treasure to make your Southbrook local church a prevailing community of eternal good in the world through Jesus, thank you. Because when the local church is working as the body of Christ, it is the hope of our world. Because as Jen said, it is the way the world gets to see Jesus in, its, in his form. So I'll tell you what, I, what, what, to, what this morning does to me. Is I'm going to ennoble every human being I come across as much as I can. 
the barista, the server at the restaurant, the person in front of me at the convenience store line, the, the person who is of a different skin color than I am, of different uh, relational orientation, uh, religious orientation than I am. I am going to just spread the Jesus love virus everywhere I go. Is anyone with me on that? Right? Uh, okay. So the local church is just the organizational part of that, where we come together, and today was somewhat organized, or we organize, and we are, we are infected with this love virus even more, and we go out and we just spread it. And that's the way, for me, and that's not the only thing, but that, of all the things we can do to intercept this, those of us who love children, we're intercepting things, Right? When we love children, I often think of what, what would happen to that little, that, to that guy who, who created that mass horror this morning if the love of God would have gotten into his heart when he was a little guy, because it probably didn't. How different would it have been for every one of those kids back there right now if people just love them and show them what the love of Jesus looks like? This is why the local church is so essential. So, you know, we do our time of generosity, but just know the bigger picture on this is the, the emanations through generations of effect. We're here today because the previous generation decided to pass it on, right? And we're here. And many of us can say our lives have literally been saved through this gospel, this message, this life of Jesus through the local church. And thank you all. So we're going to do that right now, and we just say thank you. And we're going to have a time of prayer at the end where we're going to focus on uh, the shootings, and we're going to do that at the end. I think you'll see that there is a relevance to today's subject matter. We're in this series called Text Messages, and it's just all about these little messages that Jesus sent. And uh, particularly right now, the seven text messages to churches in Asia Minor and the Roman Greco world and this little messages that he sent that are unbelievably relevant to us. And if you've been with us this summer, you, you've, you've received a bunch of those. By the way, it's good to see you in spite of the horror of today. It's good to see all of you, and it's really good to be back here. Uh, we needed this break, but we missed you. And so thank you, Southbrook, for giving us that break. Um, one of the things that, that, that happens is, 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 is the more we've done this, about 20 years ago we decided that, that I would step away uh, for a period so that I could get healthy, make sure that the church is being led by someone who's healthy. And um, so one of the things that I do when, when I am away is I disconnect. Like the first week uh, that I'm away, I don't even read the New Testament. There's too much reference to church in it. I, I, don't, I don't even read, I don't need anything in the New Testament. There's too much stuff about church. And so I just disconnect and, and go through a real mental spiritual orientation. But I dig my toes into the sands of Hilton Head Beach, and I'm under my Otentech canopy and staring out into the ocean. I have deep thoughts. And one of the things I do is just try to do some problem solving. So I was thinking about the social ill of the fist bump and the high five. Have you noticed this awkwardness now that... Because the, the fist bump came, and I'm going somewhere with this, the fist bump came along, and it just kind of messed up the handshake high five thing. And I'm all for the fist bump, especially during flu season, right? It's fist bump season now. And I just literally did this with my friend Rob Seven. He went for the fist bump, I went for the, the high five handshake, and it was a, it was a collision. 
So there's this real social problem that I was giving some thought to. How do we solve it? And the way that I realized that you solve this problem is that you show your hand early, right? Show your hand early. I don't care if it's a fist bump. I don't care if it's a high five or handshake. Show it early to me, okay? And then we're going to be in sync, all right? Now, this is not going to cure social ills or anything. And I actually didn't give thought to this over break, but I have thought about it. And, and so I want you to do this right now. If you're, if you're sitting beside someone, the person on the right, show your hand early. I don't care what you do. Do a fist bump. Do a high five. Do it right now. Show it early. Okay. Are we, any mess ups? Okay. Any mess ups? All right. Did, did you do better? All right. Now, here's where we're going with this. This is really, the, there's, the, 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 we hear this gospel of Jesus so much that, that we who communicate it have to figure out different ways so that we understand it. The claim of the gospel is that God showed his hand early. That's what he did. So, so the claim of the gospel is what's God like? What's God like? Is he this, is he this, is he this mean junior high principal in the sky that is looking for you to mess up? Is that what God's like? And how do you get on his right side? Well, you do all these things that are right, and you get on his right side. And what the gospel claims, that is unlike any other religious claim in the history of humanity, is that God showed his hand early, and it's a nail-scarred hand. That this hand, you see, the world says, what's God like? And Jesus came along and said, if you've seen me, you've seen God. This is what God's like. And the way the cross, the, the sacrificial death of Christ shows, is what it shows is this way to God is by engaging every day with an open, nail-scarred hand. Now, to take this another step, it's interesting. Have you ever had a, a, a spontaneous interaction with someone that you aren't really on good terms with? You haven't been. But everything on your side's okay, but you don't know where they stand. And you meet them at, you know out shopping or you meet them in public somewhere and you go how's this going to go and and they come up to you and they give give you a hug and you go oh everything's okay and that's what god did that's what god does every day every day he meets you with an open nail scarred hand he shows his hand isn't that amazing and you go that sounds too easy and i know that's the stumbling block it's because all of us want to be a part of a club in our human pride that not everybody can join that's what, religious, that's, what, that's what religious legalism is about is, well, we only want to be a part of a club that only if you jump through our hoops and you do our things that you get to be a part of. Now, another way to show this grace, grace is spelled D-O-N-E. It's not what we do to get to God. It's what God has done to get to us. Another rich image in Scripture of the way God did this is the door. This is a common image in Scripture and this idea of the door, the passageway. And Jesus really introduced it in John 10 when he said, I am the door. You enter your life through me, and your life will be eternally transformed. You, you choose to enter this door. Now what's interesting is, again, every other religious claim in the world is the door is locked, and I've got to figure out the right code. I've got to know the secret. And that opens the door to God, to the divine. And Jesus comes along and he says, and the imagery, if you were with us this year for Easter, you saw this dramatically with the curtain of the temple falling. Remember that? The curtain just being torn in two and falling down. And this imagery is this, is that I have opened the door. I have opened the door. Once and for all. 
that anyone can come in and all you have to do is swallow your pride and then you enter this door of grace. Now this is the image as we come to the the church, the letter, the text message to the church at Philadelphia. There was this church in Asia Minor, there's a city, Philadelphia, from which we get our cities, Philadelphia, New Philadelphia from. And the word, the, the word Philadelphia literally means city of brotherly love, as many of us know. You know, the, now we have the Philadelphia Eagles, and we have the Philadelphia 76ers, and we have the you know, Philadelphia Phillies, and, and these places of love, right? And, um, and it's interesting because the word Philadelphia means city of brotherly love. Phylos, which means brotherly love. Delphos, which means, which, which means city or town. The, the, the town of Delphos is, is town. That's its name. The town Delphos in here in Ohio, is, it's town. That means town. Town, town. <laughs> town city. <laughs> and, uh, and so this, this church was established there, the ecclesia. That was the word for church means a mini movement. An ecclesia was a city that had been set aside for Roman, for Caesar, to honor Caesar. And Jesus said, I will start my ecclesias. I will start my cities, my churches. And this church in Philadelphia, he says, I know what's going on. I've been watching you. It's really cool. Because believe it or not, Jesus knows what's going on with us. He, he, he could write a letter to the church at Southbrook if he wanted to. And here's what he says. Look at these words. Write this to Philadelphia, to the messenger of the church. It's interesting. It's translated angel, but the word means messenger. Many scholars think it, it's, the, it's the preacher of the church because preachers are like angels. Just, I'm, just, just, I'm just being biblical here, people. I'm just being biblical. And it, is, it always begins with this, the holy. That means different, set apart. But also, the word here used true is a very particular word. It doesn't mean true as in not false. It means true as in reality. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. I am reality. You don't have to self-medicate your life. You don't have to, to deny reality. You don't have to get high because you can't deal with reality. You come to Jesus and he will show you reality, the way things really are. I am the truth, the true one. And then this, David's key is in his hand, opening doors no one can lock, locking doors no one can open. That's an image of Isaiah 22. It's right from Isaiah 22. All Revelation is, I hate to tell you this, Revelation's really disappointing if you want it, you know, somebody said Revelation is the playground of religious fanatics. And it's, we want it to be dramatic and it's all about what's going to happen in the future. No, it was a letter for people back then that applies to us now, but it used Old Testament imagery over and over again because people who didn't understand the scriptures wouldn't get it, but people who did understand the scriptures would get these images. It was code is really what it was, biblical code, uh, imagery but that can be understood. And he speaks, okay? So this Jesus speaks. I see what you've done. And they've been, it's really impressive what they've done. Now see what I've done. I've opened a door before you that no one can slam shut. And this is really cool because that's, that, I don't want to get too technical here, but it's an image of this door. This door, you can't shut it. We, it just actually, when Todd Moss built this, the, the thing wouldn't stay upright if you didn't just screw the door to the opening. And this is an image of Jesus. In verse 8, the, the word he uses is in, in, in the, is in the perfect passive tense in Greek. What does that mean? It means a one-time event that has a continuing effect. 
So what he's saying is, there was one time when I opened this grace door. This is what I have done, and no one will ever be able to shut that door. The curtain of the temple has been torn. Everybody can come to God who wants to come in through me. That's what it means. Every day when you wake up, you wake up to a nail-scarred hand, and you wake up to an open door. That's what you wake up to. Now, yeah, you can choose whether you want to step through that door and live your life in that door, but every day, really... Is, a, is an opportunity for, see, okay, I'm stepping through that invitation. And that's what he says. Now look at this. This is interesting. Because there's a double meaning here. You don't have much strength. Everybody here is weaker than they appear. And he notices. I know that you've used what you had to keep my gospel, my word. Intense persecution was going on at this when this is written. Intense, like, mur- like killing and torture because people would not accept the Roman gods. They believed in the one God, the one Kurios, the one Lord was this Jesus Nazarene. You didn't deny me when times were tough, when times were rough. Next verse. And watch as I take those who call themselves true believers but are nothing of the kind, pretenders whose true membership is in the club of Satan, which as I strip off their pretensions and they're forced to acknowledge, it's you that I love. Always alongside an authentically transformed community have been these false communities. In that day, it was proselytizers, Gnostics, and some Jewish uh, Christians who had a form of godliness on the outside, but they, it was really just no inner transformation. And, and to this day, this still happens. People say they're Christian and they're this organization, but it's hate, right? It's hate. And he says, I, I'm going to acknowledge it's you I've loved because they have followed him faithfully. Next verse. And because you kept my word in passionate patience, I'll keep you safe in the time of testing that will be here soon. And all over the world, every man, woman, and child put to the test. I'm on my way. I'll be there soon. This is not a reference to the second coming. This is a reference to what he says repeatedly. I am going to show up. You're going to see me show up in this circumstance. Keep a tight grip on what you have so no one distracts you and steals your crown. Now the next verse, in spite of the fact that they're weak, look at this, look at this. Those of you who feel weak today, I'll make you a conqueror, a pillar in the sanctuary, the presence of my God, a permanent position of honor. And Pete addressed this a few weeks ago. Then I'll write names on you, the pillars. And as this Pete so well talked about a few weeks ago, you have a name in heaven. Do you know that? Your real name. You have a real name in heaven. And the name of my God, the name of God's city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, and my new name. So this new identity, even though you feel weak. Next verse. Are your ears awake? Listen, listen to the Spirit's words, the wind words, the Spirit blowing through the churches. And I don't know that since 9-11 that we've had a weekend around here where this is more needed as this has hit so close to home. The reality of evil in our world and how critical it is that this group here right now in this moment in time on a morning we will never forget as long as we live, we allow the spirit of Christ to blow through us today. Right, friends? We allow the Spirit of Christ to blow through us. That everyone in here today says, you know, I may only have a 2% trust in this, but I'm going to walk through that open door into his eternal grace that is with me every day. Now, here's what I want you to see. Once you walk through this big door, 
there are constant multiple doors to walk through. It doesn't end there, does it? You make this big decision, and in one sense, we, we decide every day to walk into his grace. But then once we do that, we face what happened in Philadelphia. And it's interesting that the wording here is not, I'm opening opportunities for you now in spite of these awful circumstances. The actual wording is, I've opened these opportunities for you now, these open doors, because of what's happened to you. Isn't that interesting? We often think that we try to live our life and then stuff happens that interrupts life. No, it doesn't. That is life, the stuff that happens. And that's actually where we see doors open. If you are here today and it feels like you're locked in a place that you can't get out of, there are no doors. Here's the message to the church in Philadelphia. There is always a door. If you're in a job, in a, in a neighborhood, in a marriage, in a family, in a physical condition where you feel like, I can't change my circumstances, remember this. Within that, he's with you and there's always a door. Not in spite of what's happening to you, but because of what's happening to you. And I don't know about you, but boy, do I need this reminder time and time again. This image of the door is a rich image in biblical literature, but it's a rich image uh, in literature, period, this door. Because a door can mean so much. A door can mean secrecy, what goes on behind closed doors. A door can uh, mean security. Uh, We were locked behind the door, implying security. A door can mean rest. If this door is a bathroom door and a mom can just go in there and lock that door and no one can get to her for days if she wants to. And she can, so a door can mean so much. But in scripture, this constant picture is a door is a part of God's opportunity that shows up even when you think there are no doors. Even when you think there are, there's, there's, there's no way I'm healing from this. There's no way this is going to get fixed. This is going to leave a permanent mark, and this represents possibility. And there's this constant picture in Scripture. You think this is permanent. You think there's no no out of this. Well, within this, there is this door, and I'm with you as you face these doors. Viktor Frankl was a very successful physician, doctor. He uh, had a wonderful family, and then the Nazis took over. And they stripped him of his practice. They stripped him of his family. They killed all his family. And then the Nazis put him in a prison, a jail cell, smaller than this stage I'm standing on. And there was no way out. And as many of you know, he wrote the unbelievable book, Man's Search for Meaning, as a result of his experiences of being the prisoner of the Nazis. And he said these words, everything can be taken from a person but one thing. The last of the human freedoms is to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And Frankel said he learned there that doors are not just physical realities. Doors are constantly in front of us, these choices that even when we're in a place that we feel we can't get out of, there's still doors of opportunity within that. And some people learn how to see these doors and they can live lives of freedom even when they feel imprisoned. And some people never learn this and they're always living in imprisoned lives even though they may be free. 
I get asked, what's, what, what are the best books you read this summer? And the, my favorite book, I ended up actually reading it twice, sort of, because I read it, and then I said, Sherry, you have got to read this book. And when we traveled to the East Coast, we actually listened to it again together, and it's called A Gentleman in Moscow by Amor Tals. And it's unbelievably written, but it's the story of in 1917 when the Bolsheviks took over Russia, the Russian Revolution, the communists took over. They killed all the aristocrats. If you were an aristocrat, it was a bad time to be an aristocrat because they killed all of them because it was all about now creating this commonness, right? And they didn't kill him. And the reason was is that he had published, uh, he was a poet, and he had published a poem that seemed sympathetic to the communist cause, and it just implied that, but in poetic language. And because of that, the authorities that be sentenced him, not to death, but they sentenced him to spend the rest of his life at the place where he lived, the Metropolitan Hotel in Moscow. And the Metropolitan Hotel was an unbelievable hotel. He lived there as a wealthy aristocrat, and for the rest of his life, he had to live there. If he stepped foot outside the Metropolitan Hotel, they would shoot him. And the rest of the story is 50 years of this life of no doors, but the doors this guy discovered within that hotel. Literally, the, 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 the story centers around a key that is given to him to unlock doors within the hotel. And that's simply a metaphor, a mechanism to show that he bloomed where he was planted, that within this place where he could not escape for 50 years, that he found an amazing life. An amazing life. It's, uh, for those of you, like, you know, I don't know about you, but, it, uh, you know, this was kind of a depressing time of year when I was in high school because it's like, oh, man, I'm going back to sentencing uh, here in a few weeks. They're, they're going back to high school. And, I, you know, high school felt like it was forever, and I was sentenced. And how can you, within, if you're in a place that you don't want to be, say, how am I going to bloom where I'm planted? Columbia researcher Sheena Iyengar claims that the average individual makes about seven 70, excuse me, 70 conscious decisions every day. So 70 doors you choose every day. Not unconscious. That's not even the unconscious things we decide. 70 conscious decisions. Listen to this. She says that is 25,550 decisions every year. Intentional doors you walk through. And over 70 years, if you live to be 70, you will have made uh, 1,788,500 decisions. So all, all the time, we're making these conscious, I choose this door, I choose this door. Any of us old enough to remember Monty Hall and the let's make a deal. Choose door number one, door number two, number three. There's always these doors in front of us, and life becomes how do I make the right choice, and then how do I see the doors that are right in front of me that nobody else sees? I, Sherry's reading this book by Kathy Geiswhite, the, the, the uh, author of the Kathy uh, comic strip. And she actually was born in Dayton, uh, 50 Things That Are Not My Fault. And she talks about standing in line at the noodle restaurant. And who ever thought we'd have noodle restaurants, like actually restaurants dedicated to noodles? And she says, she says this, she goes, am I allowed to eat noodles? I stare at the menu on the wall behind the takeout counter and try to remember it used to be so simple. Noodles were good because they were comfort food. The noodles were bad because they were fattening. The noodles were good because they were pasta. The noodles were bad because they were carbohydrates. The noodles were good because they were fiber. The noodles were bad because they were gluten. The noodles were good because they were faux. The noodles were bad because they were high glycemic. The noodles were good because they were comfort food. Then what? Well, I have six months of unread health, healthy lifestyle magazines on my kitchen counter, which puts me six months behind on where the noodle stands. 
And I stand paralyzed at the takeout window of the noodle store. And this is true that every day, you know, now I think her estimate, she Ingar's estimate is low that we have before us all these choices. Which noodle do I choose? And Albert Camus said, life is the sum total of your decisions. We, at the end, at the end of the year, at 70 years old, we could put your 1,788,000 decisions together and we would see the sum total of your life. That's how big this is. Doesn't that make you nervous? And the ability to recognize doors, to discover the range of possibilities before us in every circumstance is a big difference between people. Because there are some people who learn this skill of seeing doors when they're sentenced to the Metropolitan Hotel, and there are some people who never learn that. And which do you want to be? Stephen Coe is a researcher who studies entrepreneurs, and he says this. He says, entrepreneurs excel in opportunity alertness. They look at the same circumstances as everyone else, and they notice without search opportunities that have been overlooked. They are alert, waiting, continually receptive to something that may turn up. And I think, I do think this, I think that there are some people who develop a divine opportunity alertness. They get cancer, and, and they, they, they turn that into unbelievable impact. <laughs> I, they're sentenced to this, what seems like a physical death sentence, and yet within that, they, they turn it around. And they see the opportunity in it. It's just unbelievable. And you have to decide whether you're going to be the kind of person who never sees doors in fixed circumstances and the person who says there's always a door. There's always a message to Jesus, uh, from Jesus to the church at Philadelphia, a message to you saying, not in spite of what's happening to you, but because what is happening to you, I'm opening doors. I know we don't like to hear that really, but that's the reality. Now look at these. If you want to develop some divine opportunity alertness, here's some things you need to know about open doors. Number one, open doors do not exist for those offered them. It's not for you. It's so you can be a blessing to the world. It's not a, it should take some pressure off because ultimately it's not about you. It's about you stepping through doors and then saying, God, now how can you use this for me to be a blessing to this world? Number two, open doors are not just good things. Open doors are not just, oh, these, we often think of opportunities as, oh, I stepped into this thing that just made my life so great and blessed me. You know, that's not always the case. Jesus doesn't say to the church in Philadelphia, John, write this down. I open before you a lazy boy. You know, this is going to make your life comfortable and, and, and you're just going to take it easy. You never see that in Scripture. Every time God calls someone, he says, I'm opening a door for you. But Paul, Saul, I'm going to show you how much you will suffer for following me. And in that way, you will be a light to the Gentile world. The open doors are not all these good things. Here's another one. Open doors are not a complete view of the future. Anybody ever, I've never yet experienced a door that was glass, see-through. And before I stepped through that door, I could see what was on the other side. Almost always doors that I have to choose to step through don't show the future. And the only way you're going to know what's on the other side of that door is step through that door, that opportunity. Now, why is that important? Because let's do a poll right now so that everybody knows they're not alone. How many of you, by chance, have ever stepped through the wrong door? Raise your hand, okay? All right, turn to the person next to you and say, 
God bless you, you open door failure, okay? Because everybody here, everybody here has stepped through the wrong door. 1985, I had multiple doors presented to me uh, professionally, and I stepped through the wrong door. For seven years, I got to experience the other side of that door. I stumbled. I was in the wrong place. It was a bad fit. There's no other way to say it. it. I should never have stepped through that door. I did it for the wrong reasons. I listened to people. I did what other people wanted me to do and all that, and I stepped through the wrong door, and I today live with, uh, honestly, the scars of that. And let me get to that in a moment, though, because here is, here's something you need to know. Now, when we did, we talked about this for a whole series in 2016. We did a series, Decision-Making in the Will of God, and we dealt with this more extensively. But within that series, we dealt with these seven questions. Whenever you face a door or doors, opportunities that you ought to ask yourself. Okay, so, you, you know, I have had many people tell me I have these written on the inside of my Bible. I have these on my phone. I have in my, in my journal, whatever. And these are seven questions that when you're facing doors, it doesn't guarantee you always step through the right door, but I'll show you some hope in that even. Number one is, am I trustingly committed to Jesus Christ's will over my own? That's the first question to ask. What we just sang a little bit ago, not my will, but yours be done. Do you really want that? Because sometimes he'll open a door that you wouldn't have chosen. Number two, is it scriptural? He'll never lead you to do something that is a violation of clear teachings of Jesus in scripture. Clear teachings. He'll never lead you to do that. He's not in it, uh, in that decision if, you, if it's something that violates that. Number three, have I prayed about it? Unbelievable how many people have faced big d- doors in front of them and they never, they look back, they never prayed about it. They never really sought God about it. Number four, are the doors opening up naturally? Do you have to exaggerate your resume? Do you have to manipulate conversations? Do you have to cheat on the test? Then you're probably manipulating the door. You have to turn the doorknob. You have to knock sometimes. But if you have to unnaturally manipulate the opportunity, then it's probably not uh, the right door. Number five, what kind of counsel do I receive from Christ-following friends who know me well? This is invaluable. What we around here in our five S's call the S of support Do you have people that will tell you what you don't want to hear? I'm telling you, friends, that is an invaluable asset in a life. Not just people who will say, yeah, I went through that too, and here's what you ought to do. And they're trying to justify their own conscience. Not that. People who will speak truth to you. Number six, do I have peace about this decision? In other words, is there an inner, I know this is going to be hard. I'm stepping through the tough door, but... I have peace about that. And then and when you check those six, number seven, again, if you want this more extensively, you can look up that series. But what do I want to do? A lot of times God leads us down things that fit with our personality, our learnings, our abilities, and yearnings, because that's where we'll be most effective for him. And you ought to ask yourself those seven questions. Now, how many of you have ever done that and you still step through the wrong door? I have. All right, so there's no guarantee. Now, here's something I believe in wholeheartedly that it'll give you absolute, absolute peace for those of you who are facing some, some opportunities and decisions. Here it is. John Ortberg puts it so well. He says this, God can use a wrong door to shape a right heart. And that's what he's about anyway. So you see, this grace door, is, it, it, it's the big door. I mean, what's his will for your life? Your, his will, I can tell you right now, is that you step through that grace door into his incredible, eternal grace 
that he has you and you're walking with him and your life is lived through him. Once you've done that, here's the great freedom. I've surrendered my will to you. It's amazing how he uses wrong doors for unbelievable purposes. I stepped through the wrong door. I, I chose the wrong door in 1985. And to this day, there are so many good things that have happened inside of me because of the pain of that. Because of this, God's will for your life, friends, is not achievement. That's the byproduct. What you, what you accomplish. God's will for your life is Christ growing in you. It's the person you become. That's, that's his will. You know, what's God's will? I want to know God's will. Door number one, door number two. Door. I don't know. Are you stepping through this door? Because I know a lot of people worry about all these doors, and, and they haven't today said, Jesus, I'm stepping into your will, not my will be done. And I can guarantee you his will for your life, what he is in heaven right now, pondering for you and through his spirit in this room right now saying, are you listening that I want to have this happen in you. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I guarantee you that's his will for your life. And within that, you may choose some wrong doors. You watch him redeem that. Watch, watch how he goes to work. You see, the lesson today is real simple. Do I see the things that happen to me as obstacles or opportunities? Have I developed divine opportunity alertness? Yeah, you're going to choose some wrong doors. Honestly, you don't need to freak out about it. You may pay the price. You may have, like myself, I have scars, man. I have things that left marks because I chose the wrong door. And I left marks on other people. But it doesn't matter. It hurts, but it doesn't matter, ultimately. Anybody remember, every year around graduation time, this incredible poetry is given to graduates, and it's poetry that is so deep, yet so clear. It's written at a level that I can understand. It's poetry by Dr. Seuss. <laughs> and, and, it's, and some of you know this, because you give it out, or you've had, oh, the places you'll go. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to great heights. You know, it's, it's, it's just so inspiring. Well, there's this line in Oh, the Places You'll Go that says you have, you have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, and you can choose any direction you choose. Oh, the places you'll go. And it's, it's just about this idea that, that when you graduate, you have all these doors in front of you. Oh, the places you'll go. Does anybody remember what the next line is after that? Except when you don't. Because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true. That bang-ups and hang-ups will happen to you. And you'll get hung up in your prickly perch and you'll fall down from your hang up with a bumply, up the bumply lurch or something like that. And, and, it, and it's just, it's like reality. That you're gonna choose wrong doors and you're gonna get bumped from that. Because you chose the wrong door, what, what, what do you do with that? Here's the thing, is Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia, I have doors opening for you that are because of what you're experiencing. Do you see what's happening to you now as an obstacle, as an opportunity? We think that we're going to live our life and then these things get in the way and we try to get those, rid of those things that happen and so we can get back to our life. No, those things that happen to you are your life. 
It doesn't mean that cancer's ever good. It doesn't mean that bankruptcy and heart attacks and the loss of a spouse and a shooting in our city is ever good. It does not mean that. But what it means is right now in the city of Dayton, you and I, for example, we have a door open before us to show amazing love to every person we interact with in our city because people are scared, right? There's a door that's open, not in spite of what happened last night, but because of it. I was reading about Sebastian Younger. He's a, he's a best-selling author and filmmaker. And I didn't know this, but he was 29 years old and he was an arborist. He was working as an arborist. He's cutting trees for a living. And he was on the upper canopy of a pine tree with a chainsaw, a running chainsaw, and he slipped and the chainsaw sliced his thigh open. And he says that he was struggling. Two months later, he was he was still limping. But when that chainsaw s- struck his thigh, he got an idea to write about dangerous jobs. And he said two months later, a fishing vessel out of Gloucester, Massachusetts, where he lived, was lost at sea. And those two things coalesced the scar on his thigh with that fishing vessel for the idea that he would write about dangerous jobs. And he wrote the book, The Perfect Storm. A little bit later, as he was on this dangerous jobs trek, he came up with the idea of creating this documentary about war, and it was nominated for an Oscar called Restrepo. And he looks back and he says, now, that cut was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. It gave me this template for seeing my career. Virtually every good thing in my life I can trace back to a misfortune. So my feeling is you don't know what is good and what is bad when things happen. You do not know. You have to wait to find out. That does not mean that shootings and cancer and losing your child is a good thing ever. Please do not hear me. I don't want to be accused of being glib with this. But what I am saying is that within that there is opportunity for grace and tenacity and grit and love and light in the midst of that darkness that would never have been there if that had not happened. I don't understand, but that's, the, that's reality, friends. The, the biblical basis I have for saying this is there was this guy named Saul who became this guy named Paul. And he, he, he was tapped on the shoulder and Jesus said, I'm going to use you, Paul, to go to the non-Jewish world. You're going to change the world forever. I'll show you how much you must suffer to do that. And one day he finds himself in a Roman jail, t- chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. Now think about this, this combustible activist, causal person who's now chained in a small cell to a, to a Roman soldier. And what happened? He started writing, something he never would have done if he was always traveling and preaching and everything. He starts writing, and out comes Galatians and Philippians and Colossians and and Thessalonians and 1st 2nd Timothy. He starts writing. I always wonder, did he write to his mom? Did they ever think about that? You write to the Philippians and the Colossians, but you never write me a letter. And, uh, and, And he writes, and out comes most of the New Testament. Because he was chained to a Roman soldier and he would write these words in Philippians 1.12 to the Philippian people who says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the things that have happened to me have really served to advance the gospel. Shipwrecks and beatings and betrayal, everything bad that almost can happen to a human being, sickness happened to him and he says, I want you to know I have divine opportunity alertness with this. 
Which person do you want to be? Two men looked through prison bars. The one saw mud, the other stars. Do you want to be the kind of person who you could be in, in a prison cell and you're still free? Or the kind of person who doesn't have divine opportunity alertness? I was thinking of this line this week. And uh, I used to sing this song to my kids. I started with Austin and, uh, because of the song. And then I changed it to girl, to Jordan. But when they were little, every once in a while, I wouldn't do it all the time, but every once in a while when we'd tuck them in bed at night, especially if I knew they were feeling insecure, I would sing the song that John Lennon wrote, Beautiful Boy. And it's a song that God could sing to you. He may very well sing that to you, especially when you're afraid and you're feeling weak. And the song starts, and I used to sing it, Close your eyes, have no fear, the monster's gone, and your daddy's here. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful boy. And then the words go like this. Out on the ocean, sailing away, I can hardly wait to see you come of age. But I guess we'll both just have to be patient because it's a long way to go and it's a hard road to hoe. Yes, it's a long way to go, but in the meantime, before you cross the street, take my hand. And does anybody remember the next line? Life is what happens to you while you're busy making other plans. Life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And I think what Jesus is saying to the church of Philadelphia is, I know you're afraid. A monster of Rome was coming down on them. But he says, take my hand. I'm opening doors and life is found while you're busy making other plans. Maybe that's true of you. It's helped me. Let's pray. Father, I look in this room today and I see friends who are in, a, you know, they're, they're still every day living in the surrender of recovery. But every, the, the rest of their life, they will be an addict. I see people who are in... T- awful abusive situations I see loved ones who have lost children I see a city that is rocked and some things we may not be able to change help us to have the serenity to know the things we cannot change and the courage to change the things we can and the wisdom to know the difference. That today, we make sure we all walk through the door of grace that God is open to us every day and we can live within the power of that grace and love. I pray that. I pray that this church has divine opportunity alertness. Father, all of us join together right now We pray for those who have lost loved ones this morning. Not only in Dayton, but in El Paso. We pray your light shines in their darkness. We pray for those who are being treated right now, that you would heal. And just like the cross was the most awful, dark, cruel, barbaric thing, and Satan thought he had you, he could not have been more 
incorrect, that that was actually the way you were gonna show your love to the world, and that in spite of the evil of this, that this is a door that is open before us in Dayton with the tornadoes to show love of another kind. So, Lord, as we walk out of here, we walk through your door, and we do it in, in grace, in Jesus, in his character, and everybody who wants this agreed with me and said, amen. We'll see you next week, everybody. We'll see you next week.